We are looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 25, and we will, in the sermon, also look down through the remainder of that chapter. And so if you have a copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 17. You'll find that on page 952. If you're using a copy of the church Bible and we are looking this morning at the preaching of the word in worship. We have in this series looked at everything from God calling his people to worship to us calling on the Lord in worship to singing God's praises in worship to giving back to God in worship, uh, reading his word in worship and all these different parts of what we call our order of worship or liturgy here at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. And this morning we're looking in a focused way at the preaching of God's word in worship. And so I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of scripture open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and to be reading along with me this morning. We're looking at verses 17 through 25. And before we do, let me pray for us and again ask for God's blessing on the ministry of his word. Father, please bless according to your promise that you have said as the rain that comes down and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth and bud, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall your word be accomplishing the purpose for which you've sent it. And so, our Father, we pray that your word would accomplish purposes of grace and salvation among us. We pray that you would soften every heart. We pray that you would convict We pray that you would instruct. We pray that you would convert. We pray that you would sanctify. We pray, our God, that in all that you do, you would be merciful, that you would not allow any heart to be hardened. We pray, our God, that above all things, you would make us to see Jesus Christ and to be drawn to him and to trust in him more fully and to love him more dearly. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to hear your voice as of the voice of the good shepherd calling us to follow you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church he had planted. And so there is, in a sense, a very special word here to a church with which he was very intimate and uh, whose problems he uh, was very intimately attuned to. And the Apostle now says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, the great British evangelical preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1957, 60 years ago, stood in his pulpit at Westminster Chapel and he said, there is a curious tendency even in the church itself to depart from the faith. There is ever this confusion, this uncertainty, and certainly at this present time, it is something that is painfully evident There is this tendency to go astray and to misunderstand. What is the Christian message? What is the Christian faith? What is it to be a Christian? Now, if that was true in 1957, it is certainly true in 2017. And it was certainly true in 57 AD, probably around the time when the Apostle Paul wrote this great letter to this church he had planted. And the Corinthians were a church that had received the gospel. They had received the gospel from the greatest evangelist in human history. They had received the gospel from the greatest apostle in human history. They had been instructed in all the rich mysteries of Jesus Christ by the greatest apostle, by one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of the earth. And yet they were in danger of turning away. They were in danger of rejecting not only the apostle Paul, but the very heart of what God had sent the apostle to bring to them, the message of the gospel. They, they had become very sophisticated. They were a wealthy congregation. They were an intelligent congregation. They lived in an area of the world at that time that was exceedingly sophisticated, became a word of sophistication and reprobation to talk about Corinthianizing. They were an elite group of individuals, and because of that, they, they were in danger of forgetting the Christian message. They were in danger of forgetting what was most central. Now, I think that's very instructive to us because America, of all the nations in human history, is probably most in danger of falling into the exact same snare as the church in Corinth, and the church in America of all the manifestations of God's churches in the world is most in danger of falling into the same snare as the church in Corinth. And you'll notice that as the Apostle Paul has come to them to address uh, many issues with them, he begins with the issue that they were divided over who they followed. They were divided there in verses 10 and following over what teachers they preferred. They'd become sermon tasters. They, they had determined that in their own wisdom, there were sophisticated uh, forms of rhetoric and eloquence that would better advance the kingdom. There were these things, if they could just do these things, the kingdom would advance better. The church would be a little more accepted. The people of God would be a little more esteemed. And at the end of the day, everything would be better. And here was the great apostle Paul, who was not sophisticated or eloquent in speech. He was incredibly brilliant, one of the most brilliant theologians in human history. And yet he was was a man weak in speech at his own admittance. He was a man who was not eloquent. There was nothing about Paul that was dignified. He was a short, uneloquent, inarticulate, unattractive Jew. That's what he says about himself. And this Gentile church 
wanted more sophistication. They wanted a better means of advancing the kingdom. They wanted a better method of advancing the kingdom than that which God gave them. And as the apostle here is addressing these issues, notice that he begins in verse 17 in this transitional section to the very heart of what is central to Christianity. What is the central message of Christianity? What is the central means by which God advances his kingdom? And we may rightly say in this series, what is the centerpiece of Christian worship? And the Apostle Paul, in absolutely no uncertain terms, tells us that it is one thing and one thing only. It is the preaching of the gospel. It is the foolish, weak method of preaching Christ crucified, by which God has determined to manifest all of his wisdom and all of his power in the life of the church. And we're going to see this morning as we consider especially verses 17 through 25, um, two things. First, we're going to consider the primacy of the preaching of the gospel. And secondly, we're going to consider the purpose of of the preaching of the gospel. Well, as I've already noted, the apostle is addressing this issue. And, and it seems that at some point, there must have been uh, this sort of uh, almost creature worship happening in Corinth where uh, the people were so revering uh, men and men who could bring them status in their church, men that could make them more affluent in their outward public appearance as a church, take away a little bit more of the disdain and the, the, the disgust and the offense of the cross, they were boasting about who had baptized who. Oh, you know, well, Peter baptized this person, and well, we were baptized by Apollos. And now, that may seem silly, but that, that actually is a very real snare, and it's a snare that happens today, and how much more in the days of the apostles. And and, and they were saying, well, we like Peter's preaching better than Paul's preaching, and we like Apollos' preaching better than Peter's preaching. And, and you know, I, I thought about this yesterday as much as I love the Reformed faith, and I love Reformed theology. Uh, we can fall into the exact same snare, and we can talk about men, and we can talk about doctrinal camps, and we can talk about uh, manifestations of God's work in certain places in church history in a way that borders idolatry. Um, and we can put Jesus in the periphery. We can put the gospel, the centrality of the message. We can be in danger of falling into the exact same thing. And you know where I think it happens most potently and most often is in the, the public worship of the people of God. I think that's where we're most in danger of trying to bring in things that we revere. We, we love this part of worship. We love this person doing this. We love this. And we're not keeping our eyes fixed on the central message that makes us a Christian and the heart of the Christian faith and the heart of Christian focus and worship. And so notice what the apostle says when he comes to introduce the primacy of preaching the gospel. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Now, Paul is going to do something marvelous in the verses just before this. He's going to go to the very heart of what's happening, and he's going to say, you know, uh, with baptism, baptism is actually something the minister of the gospel is administering to the people of God. 
And, and so it is, it is more easily perverted into what the Corinthians were doing and saying, well, so-and-so baptized me and we were baptized by so-and-so and so-and-so is more important than so-and-so because he baptized these people too. And Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Notice back, he says in verse uh, 13, is Christ divided, was Paul crucified for you? So there is one thing that the apostles could not do. There is one thing that no man, mere man, can do for you, and that is be crucified for you. Only Jesus can be crucified for us. Um, there is, in that, there is nothing that we bring to the table. Um, when Paul goes to the cross, he is saying, it is the thing, because God has appointed it to be the thing, and it is the thing because it is entirely independent of human wisdom, effort, status or ability and it is entirely the work of god it is entirely the work of the redeemer and therefore man can receive no glory from it that's where paul's going to move toward the end of this section and he's saying because of that the church is united in that central thing that thing that we are always in danger what lloyd jones says that 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 danger that tendency to go astray and to misunderstand what is the heart of the Christian message, what is the Christian faith, what does it mean to be a Christian, and notice that Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, uh, Paul is not saying he didn't baptize anybody. In fact, he's going to tell us just before this, he did baptize people. And it is part of the work of the gospel ministry for ministers to baptize, the covenant sign is supremely important. Paul is not saying baptism doesn't matter, preaching the gospel does. He is not saying that. What he is saying is baptism is less important than the preaching of the gospel. And what he is saying is in the unique ministry God gave him, the primacy of the ministry of the apostle, both without and within the church, and even within the worship of the people of God was the preaching of Christ crucified. Uh, Paul will say to us, notice in chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that's all well and good. And if you're a Christian, you should be saying yes. And yet the reality is very few of us demonstrate that in any kind of consistent way. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson once said at our General Assembly, he said, uh, when men are ordained to gospel ministry, they are often charged with being men who will determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, but take a look on the bookshelves of these men and listen to their sermons just a few years in, and you'll see how missing and how rare that actually is that you have a man who is determined not to know anything everything in the scriptures related to jesus christ and him crucified the person of the redeemer and the work of the redeemer the saving grace and mercy of the redeemer everything moving into christ everything moving out from the crucified savior everything about the sufferings 
of the Redeemer. Remember, we've already seen last week that Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he opens the scriptures from the law and the Psalms and the prophets, from all the scriptures, he showed his disciples everything in all the scriptures about himself. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow in heart to believe all that the scriptures have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered and to have entered into these glories? And here the Apostle Paul is is demonstrating that the primacy in the church, and for that matter, the primacy in Christian worship. Let let me say this this morning. If you have been in a Bible-believing, expositional preaching, gospel-centered, reformed church, and you've noticed that the pulpit is central, there is a good reason for that. The Reformation recovered for us the primacy of preaching from passages like this. Paul doesn't say... I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified and good entertainment in the church. Charles Spurgeon said, Our Lord and Master did not say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But those that don't hear you, throw a great concert for them. He didn't say that. And there is nothing in the worship service that in any way surpasses or supplants or exceeds the importance of the primacy of the preaching of the word. You know, when Jonathan Edwards, visiting a church that was not even his own church, preached that great sermon, and as they say, Edwards would look at the back of the wall when he preached, often reading from the manuscript, and he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he said, many of you are dangling over hell by your breath. The only thing keeping you from hell, God says, it's like a spider dangling is your breath. And then at the end says, Jesus is holding out his mercy now. And if you will flee, flee from Sodom, flee from the wrath to come. If you'll flee to Christ, you'll be saved. And people were weeping and wailing. It wasn't entertainment that did that. It wasn't any other thing in the service that did that. Any real work of God in the life of the church and in the midst of the worship of the people of God that has any power and any lasting value and any transformative element to it, it is the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. The apostle tells us that. He he says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, It is not just the primacy of preaching. Now, I want you to notice this. The apostle does speak of preaching throughout this passage. And that begs the question, what is preaching? It's not a dialogue. You know, some churches, and I'm not here to trash churches, but some churches love to have coffee talk up on the stage. That's not preaching. That's not preaching. Preaching is not a dialogue. It is an ambassador of Jesus proclaiming a message from the king to the people to whom he sent them that Jesus Christ has been crucified for sinners and that if you will trust in him, you will be saved. It is the heralding of the message that will in all of eternity determine who is saved and who is perishing. Now, it is not just preaching, though. There are many people who... Uh, think that they preach. There's many people that think that what they're doing is preaching in a monologue, and yet they are not putting Jesus Christ as central. And that is not true preaching. It doesn't matter how much moral uh, vivification people may get from it. It doesn't matter, uh, no matter how much emotional strength somebody may gain from uh, whatever message. You know, people get all kinds of highs listening to sophisticated speakers do TED Talks. That's not preaching. Um, a momentary steroid shot of emotional boost to get you through another week is not preaching. 
telling people how to be better and live better and live more strictly is not God-honoring, Christ-exalting preaching in itself. Holding forth the crucified Savior is God-honoring preaching in itself. And the apostle says that it holds the central place among the church, the central place in and among the people of God. Now, he moves on from the primacy of preaching to the purpose of preaching and dedicates the remainder of his time to this subject throughout this chapter and into the second chapter. And notice that there are these series of fours. You'll notice that in verse 18, really back in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then notice in verse 22, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. And then notice verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than the men. And then verse 26, for consider your calling. One of the most important things my mom ever taught me when I was a boy is what's the for for? Why is there a for there? The apostle is giving us the purpose. Why is it that the preaching of Christ crucified is central. Why is that central? Because if it's left to us, we can certainly come up with better things to attract people, to get a bigger crowd, to get more people in, to be more efficient, to get a building, b- bigger building campaign, to do whatever else we want. There are much better means than preaching a crucified Savior that is foolishness and a stumbling block to everybody outside of union with Christ. Everybody that doesn't know Jesus hates, absolutely hates the message of Christ crucified. It is odious. It it is a stench in their spiritual nostrils. And there are 50 million things we could do better. You know, this church had fallen into that trap. They They had received the gospel. Their lives had been changed by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they had seen the Redeemer. They had seen the one who walked through Palestine, healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead, the one who marched all the way to the cross, who was beaten and mocked and spit upon and, and crowned with thorns and nailed to the tree. They, they had believed on him. They had, they had put their faith in him. They were, they were united to him, and yet they were in danger of saying, there, there's more that we could be doing We could be doing something better to attract people. Um, By the way, that is always the default of the flesh. Um, The flesh will always try to sneak in there something people can do better. Something people can do and something we can bring to the table, both in worship and in our Christian lives. Um, we, 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 listen, this is in every one of us. We want... We want recognition, status, acceptance. We don't want people to hate what we believe. We don't want people to hate us. We don't want persecution. We don't want to be despised. We, we, we want to be bigger and better and smarter. And Paul says, listen, he says, notice verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. One of the great purposes, and and Paul's going to give us several here. One of the great purposes for the primacy of the preaching of Christ crucified is that God is determined 
to thwart the wisdom of this world. God is determined to overthrow human structures and human knowledge and human wisdom and human invention. God is determined to show the surpassing greatness of his wisdom in overthrowing the wisdom of this fallen world and the the supposed wisdom of of, uh, natural man. God is determined to do that, and he's going to do it in the most foolish and base and weak and unexpected and unloved and unlovely of ways. That's, That's the brilliance of God. God has said, This is why it's going to be primary in my church and among my people, because I am overthrowing all of the wisdom of this world with the most foolish and ignorant and base and despised of things, a crucified, beaten, mocked redeemer. Nailed to a tree. He doesn't look sophisticated. He doesn't look mighty. He doesn't look powerful. He doesn't look glorious. He doesn't look like he will give us what we want in the flesh because he won't. But he'll give us what we need. And notice Paul talks here about God destroying the wisdom of the world and the discernment of the supposed discerning. And in doing so, saving those who will believe. Now, Paul will summons the uh, philosophers and remember Corinth is predominantly made up of Gentiles, and in this day there, were, there was one great division in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. That was the great division. Everybody fell into one of those two categories. And Paul is going to say here that those two categories had distinctive things about them. There were distinctive uh, traits or characteristics. He'll say here, um, in the first place, notice in verse 22, Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, um, that, you may say, is an overgeneralization, but it was a general categorization of, of what the Jews strove after in the first century, in Jesus' day, in the Apostles' day, and what Gentiles, by nature, strive after. Now, I think we can take those two things, after I unpack them here, I'll explain this in more detail, and I think that everything that we run after, everything the church is ever in danger of falling into, Uh, in both its worship and in its life and outreach is the danger of wanting the spectacular and the sophisticated. Those are the two categories. Jews wanted the spectacular. Gentiles want the sophisticated. And uh, here, the church in Corinth was more leaning toward the sophisticated. But Paul's going to say it is one and the same error with the Jews wanting the spectacular. Remember, in Jesus' own day, um, the Jews said to him, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually says to the Jews, he says to them, um, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus doesn't give them a sign. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought this, because often when we as believers think about Christ, we love his miracles. I love the miracles of Jesus. And nothing builds our faith so much as seeing Jesus say to a paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he does. Nothing builds our faith so much as Jesus standing outside of the tomb of a man dead for four days and saying, Lazarus, arise, and he rises. Nothing builds our faith so much 
as a woman with a flow of blood for 12 years, spending everything that she has to get better and getting no better, touching the hem of the garment of the Savior, and immediately she's healed. Almost nothing builds our faith so much as, as seeing Jesus in compassion, touching a leper who can't be touched because it makes him unclean, and realizing that Jesus is taking the uncleanness on himself and making that man clean to worship and to witness again and to live among God's people. Nothing. What, what builds our faith more than that? Well, the cross does. The cross does, and the scriptures in and of themselves do. And one of the things that I think we often fail to remember is that Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus wasn't just a wonder worker. He didn't walk around Palestine, bam, 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 bam. That's not, he actually taught a lot more than he healed. John says if all the things done by him and said by him were written, the world could not contain all the things. William Still, the great Scottish theologian, said Jesus was very economic. Jesus is exceedingly economic of spectacle and miracle. That means he was frugal and cautious and wise and principled about spectacle and miracle. There were times Jesus would not do a miracle because people were just testing him because they wanted the spectacular. Now, still goes on to say, and this is a beautiful statement. This is one of the most beautiful statements. This is why we read church historians that are especially reformed, because they say things like this. William still says, there's much more in the Bible about quiet courage and humble acceptance than about moving mountains. There's much more in the Bible about quiet courage and humble acceptance than about moving mountains. It's not to say that miracles don't have a place. Clearly they did. They attested that Jesus was the second Adam who's going to heal his people in the resurrection. They were signposts pointing to him. But the scriptures and the gospel, and when Jesus tells those who are, who are lusting after the spectacular so that they can just be wowed and entertained by miracles, he says, no sign is going to be given to you, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. You want a sign? Here's the sign. Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. The son of man will be three days and three nights in the earth. It was a gospel type. Jesus points to the scriptures. He says, here's your sign. It's all pointing to me. Now, I think when we matriculate that into our own day, um, I think so much of what happens in worship in churches is a quest after the spectacular. If you're like me and you love superhero movies, they, they keep getting more and more and more intense, and they keep getting more and more and more spectacular because we have in our hearts what the Jews had in their hearts. Just wow me! Show me something! And Jesus says, I'll show you my cross. I'll show you myself beaten and mocked and nailed to a tree for you. That's the spectacular. That's, that's the power that's where all God has invested all of his power into the message of Christ crucified. You know, if you lack power, and I lack power in my Christian life, it's because we're not, we are not resting in that, believing that, looking to Christ in that. The apostle will tell us in Ephesians chapter 1 that, for you who believe the exceeding greatness of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead works in us. So God wants you to, he wants us to know power. 
And that power only comes in Christ crucified. He also wants us to know wisdom in that he is thwarting the wisdom of the world. Notice that the Jews, Paul says, requested a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, the entire uh, philosophical enterprise that Paul was living at the very inception of in his own day when he walked through Athens, notice that Paul didn't say to them, well, let's, let's talk about um, unity and diversity. Let's talk about, is everything static or is it flux? He didn't, he didn't go into their philosophical arguments. He preached Christ in the epicenter. Now, the church for the last 2,000 years has been in a, a fight to preserve the gospel from mixing it with philosophical speculation, sociological quest, and and really when we mix the gospel, Edward Donnelly says this, when we mix the gospel with philosophical speculations or ideas, we lose the gospel. Um, Whether it is the earliest philosophical uh, thinkers, Heraclitus, Parmenides, Aristotle, Plato, Hume, Kant, Leibniz, Foucault, Derrida. You know, I, I, when I lived in Philly, saw that, that the church was ever in danger of that. I, I had friends that went to the same church I went to who were very bright students at the University of Pennsylvania. And, um, and they would be like, well, what do you think about Derrida and literary binaries? And I'm like, well, what do you think about Jesus crucified? <laughs> I mean, really, I care very little about literary binaries, very little, and I care very much about the message of the cross, because the apostle says that God came to thwart the wise, to overthrow those who thought that they, in their own wisdom, could structure reality could tell you the mysteries of life and, and, and could, in that sense, wow you with sophisticated intellect and knowledge. And, and the apostle says, listen, where is, notice verse 20, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, Paul is in no uncertain terms saying no one can savingly know God by their own reasoning capacity. Paul is saying that. He is saying in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom could not know God, did not know God, will never know God. Um, This is why Paul will warn the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The world, the air that you're breathing, Jesus is enabling you to breathe right now. The whole world was made in Jesus. And so we can know nothing outside of Christ. And we can't know God except through Christ crucified. You know, my friend Burke Parsons was on the panel this last week at Ligonier, and he said to the men uh, that were speaking, don't you think in our day it's acceptable to talk about Jesus, to use the word the gospel, to use Christian lingo, but But the most unacceptable thing in the world is to say Jesus is the only redeemer. There is no salvation outside of him. You cannot know God except by faith in Jesus Christ crucified. And that if you don't believe, you'll perish. 
I think that Burke is right. I think there are many, 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 many churches in this country and around the world that will give half-truths that sound so wonderful, and yet they are synchronizing them with worldly wisdom. They are taking away, in sophisticated ways, the offense of the cross, and they are falling into the very snare that the Apostle is talking about. Notice that the Apostle Paul says as he develops out this in more detail in verses 26 and following, he says, remember your calling, brothers. So what does the cross do for me? Right? What is the purpose of the cross for me? It reminds me that I have nothing and I am nothing, that I can do nothing and I can know nothing that will please God in any way whatsoever, I have nothing, I can do nothing, I am nothing, and I deserve nothing, and that God has done it all. That's what Paul's going to say in the remainder of this chapter. Christ crucified reminds me that God has done everything necessary to to give me salvation and eternal life, and that apart from him, that, that there's nothing, nothing else. Notice, for those, and this is, you know, this is one of those things we should love But I don't think we do love it like we should because I think we're a lot like the Corinthians by nature. I think by nature we do like status and reputation and, you know, we want to, we want sophistication. We want recognition. We want, we want a little piece of the glory pie now. And, uh, and I think this, this is almost the most scathing. Paul's writing to these people who are living that way and he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are mighty, according to flesh. Not many noble, not many wise. God's chosen the weak and the base and the foolish things. So don't don't be discouraged that only a few believe. And don't be discouraged that among those believe that the better part of them are foolish and ignorant and base and weak and rebellious and uneducated. When we care about educational status... When we think, well, I'm giving my children a classical education and that makes them better, we fall into the trap that Paul is trying to obliterate in our thinking. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many, a few, not many. Notice he says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world. So the message that saves the foolish is a foolish message because it's for foolish people. The message that saves the unwise, looks unwise, because God is saving unwise people. Um, I love the words of Michael Card's song. I don't know if you guys have heard this, God's Own Fool. Uh, We in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool, and he opened our eyes. I love that. That's what we believe. Jesus Christ crucified is God playing the fool, to open the eyes of those that think they're wise. And notice the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is that God gets glory. Now, let me come back to that just briefly. I want to say two more things. God puts a division in the world through this message. The division at the opening of this section is Jew and Gentile. Now, right now, it's very trendy to talk about... um, all kinds of divisions in the world. It's, it's, I mean, you can't open the news or your Twitter feed without hearing people talking about reconciliation. 
Um, I'm going to say this reverently because I think Paul would say this. Um, and, and I heard D.A. Carson say this recently. I think it's right. If we can speak of eternity in this way, 50 billion years into eternity, it won't matter whether you're slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek, black or white. The only thing matters is, is whether you're saved or perishing. In eternity, you're either saved or you're perishing. That's it. That's the new division. God sent Christ to redeem a people through a foolish means, through a foolish message of preaching, so that in eternity we can be saved, and those that reject it will perish. And notice, at the end of the day, if we are saved, and if we are redeemed, if we are part of that new humanity, if we are part of the new creation, if we are part of those that God raised up in Christ, notice, if we're in Christ, verse 30, one of the most beautiful pieces of literature, by the way, who became to us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As it is written, let him who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Now, why is preaching and not the sacrament primary in Christian worship? Because preaching of the gospel brings God maximum glory because it's all about what he's done and it's nothing about what we do. It's actually possible for you this morning to come to the table self-righteously. It's possible for you to sing and play music self-righteously. It's possible for me to preach self-righteously, but it's not possible for the message of the gospel to come to you in any other way but with all the wisdom and the power of God if Christ crucified is being proclaimed. And God gets maximum glory from that. This is why Paul could say in Philippians uh, chapter 1 that some preach Christ out of envy and strife, supposing to add affliction to my chains, just so long as Christ is preached. I don't care. In this I'll rejoice. Because Paul knew if Christ crucified is preached, people will be saved. Now, as we continue on in this series, obviously we are committed to expositional preaching at this church. And, and it would be fair to say there is more than just Christ crucified that we preach. But, but I hope never um, outside of its unity, its revelation unity to Christ crucified, its, its relationship to. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, who's far and away my favorite theologian, says, um, if, if a minister wants to know whether what he is saying in the pulpit is right, it's the right message, he should test the purport of his sermon with the purport of the supper. And if they're one and the same, then it's right. The supper holds out a crucified Savior to us. It is the visible preaching of the gospel. Um, I hope that you will, A, respond to the preaching of the gospel, that you will acknowledge your need for Christ, that if you've never come to Jesus Christ, that you'd come to him, that if you are offended by the message of a crucified Savior, you would see that it's your only hope for eternal life. None will be saved apart from that. None will be saved apart from him. Um, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And yet God holds Christ out, crucified. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He is wanting people to flee to him, to run to him, to embrace him, to trust him. Number two, I, I want to charge this church. You know, for those of you who have embraced Christ, uh, guard your hearts against wanting sophistication in worship and in witness. That's a very real thing. It's a very real danger. Guard against wanting 
the most sophisticated of whatever it is and trusting in those things, um, none of those things matter. They don't matter at all. Nothing. They don't matter at all. Even if you could calculate all that they matter in this life, they matter nothing in light of eternity. Only Christ crucified matters. And then I want to encourage you to love the ministry of the preached word, to listen attentively, to meditate on it, to to think back over the things God has had proclaimed to you and that you would cherish them and embrace them and live out of them and give God glory for them. As Paul says at the end of this section, let him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we are often foolish and we're often moved away from the hope of the gospel by our desire for other things, for the spectacular and for the sophisticated. And Lord, we acknowledge that we don't even perceive often when that is happening in our minds and hearts. And so, Lord God Almighty, we pray that you would change us, that you would make us Again, to have our hearts recalibrated to what is most important, what is primary, and what accomplishes your eternal purposes, even the message of your Son crucified for our sin on the cross. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us uh, a, a sight, that we would see your bloodshed, and that our hearts would be broken and softened, and that, that you would give us grief and sorrow over our sin, and that you would give us joy and peace in believing. We pray these things in your name. Amen.